0: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) AutoTrader. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style, and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, my name is Cole Cabana. I'm a podcaster, but most importantly, I'm a professional wrestler. I know... This is an Earwolf feed. You guys didn't sign up for any professional wrestling, but let me say something. If you don't think the genre of professional wrestling doesn't mix unbelievably well with a podcasting network based off of comedy, well, then that's your problem. Also, I'm not just a professional wrestler. I'm a comedian. My genre of wrestling is comedic professional wrestling. I'm one of you guys. I've been featured on WTF, Doug Loves Movies, The Chris Gethard Show. Every August, I go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and I perform a wrestling comedy show. But my background, my true love is wrestling. I've been wrestling going on 18 years now. And although I did have a cup of coffee in the WWE, I pride myself on the independent alternative wrestling scene. I've wrestled in some of the most unconventional places, including the Gathering of the Juggalos, which I have an audio documentary that you can listen to on Howl. But the Pro Wrestling Fringe series isn't about me. It's a storytelling podcast about some of the most bizarre, weird, wacky things that have happened in the world of wrestling. And not mainstream stuff like stories about John Cena or The Rock. I'm presenting to you short post-produced stories like about the time Ted Turner took a failing over seven foot giant from Argentina who couldn't cut it in the NBA and then threw him into his professional wrestling league. Or what about the wrestling promotion in Japan that's subtitled Super Handicapped Professional Wrestling, where you can buy a ticket to watch a wrestler with cerebral palsy fight another wrestler who's paralyzed from the waist down. I'll even tell you about the greatest comedian that you've never even heard about. He wasn't a stand-up. He didn't do sketch. He didn't train at the UCB. He was a professional wrestler. Stories like this that you probably have never heard before that you could just listen to on your commute and enjoy. To hear all these stories and the complete archives of my podcast, The Art of Wrestling, sign up at Howell.fm. Use my promo code Colt. Listen for free for a month. You've always heard of the weird community of professional wrestling fans. Well, now you're one of them, and we love having you. Enjoy the stories. Thanks. I'm professional wrestler Colt Cabana. This is Pro Wrestling Fringe, unique stories from a unique genre. I make a living wrestling on the outskirts of televised professional wrestling, I've wrestled at fat camps, dirt patches in India. I've wrestled for the Inuits in the northernmost part of Canada. I've wrestled on the border towns in Mexico with the Aborigines in Australia. From entertaining the hipsters mixing lucha, burlesque, and cheap beer to the ICP fans at the Gathering of the Juggalos. I have one of the oddest and most diverse resumes in my profession. The Pro Wrestling Fringe podcast is about sharing the bizarre stories not that have happened to me but that have been told in the locker rooms and spread from generation to generation. And that's what they are. Stories. Unique stories from a unique genre. On this episode, David Bixenspan and I work together to help retell a story about race relations in the Southern Wrestling Territory. Directly after the story, I talk with Bix himself, and we help further the discussion. But for now, sit back and enjoy this wonderful story black and white there's so many different ways you can watch pro wrestling I mean, we're now in an era of communication where there's thousands of blogs and podcasts that break down and analyze every meticulous move that the professional wrestler makes. Heck, even French philosopher Roland Barthes' 1957 book Mythologies tries to break down the art form in an essay titled The World of Wrestling. You should give it a read. It's it's actually pretty interesting. But if you're a kid... If you're a little kid, like you and I both were at one time and maybe might be right now, I mean, you just watch it. You just sit back and you let them entertain you. It's, it's very simple. It's baddies versus goodies, bad guys versus good guys, blue eyes versus villains, the heels versus the baby faces. When you break it down, I mean, that's all pro wrestling really is. One of the wrestling territories of the mid-20th century that's a perfect example of this philosophy was Memphis, Tennessee. Now, thanks to Andy Coffin and all the national press brought to the Memphis spotlight, most casual fans know the name Jerry Lawler. He was a god to the wrestling fans in Memphis. Well, he kind of was, actually. He He was the king. And Jerry Lawler wrestled all different characters throughout the years, and you'd know exactly who the good and who the evil is when you're wrestling guys like Lord Humongous and Colossus of Death. Take a guess who's good and who's bad on that one. And before Lawler, there was Lawler's mentor, the fabulous Jackie Fargo. But before both Lawler and Fargo, the biggest star in the Bluff City was a guy by the name of Sputnik Monroe. And in the ring, he was a heel. He was actually one of the original cool heels. But he was also one of wrestling's biggest heroes for his actions outside of the ring. Roscoe Monroe Brumbaugh debuted in 1945 and kind of just floated around the Southeast wrestling territory for the first 12 years of his career. He was a journeyman, a globetrotter. He went by all types of names. None, none would ever really stick though. Rock Monroe, Rocky Monroe, Elvis Rock Monroe, Pretty Boy Roke, which is basically just rock with a Q in it. And it wasn't until 1957 that his career it would change forever. On the territorial wrestling scene, wrestlers would travel on what is called a loop. You would do a show in Evansville, then drive to Nashville, finish your match, and head to Louisville. Setting up the matches and angles in one town, then going to the next town and doing the exact same thing. Then you'd come back the next week to the same towns to further those stories. Rinse, wash, repeat. That was the equation that they used for years. It was part of a never-ending loop. So on his way from Mississippi to Mobile, Alabama... Monroe decided to pick up a young black man who he found hitchhiking. Not only did he give him a ride, he brought him to the show with him. And as they got out of his car and walked into the arena together, they were met by a woman. Now this woman, she was not happy at the sight of this. Swearing at him, cussing at him, berating him for daring to be around a black man. Now Monroe, he was great. He wouldn't and didn't tolerate this type of bigotry. So that night... He decided, well, he'd get a little revenge. He and his friend, well, they parked themselves behind the curtains leading to the locker rooms. They positioned themselves accordingly, mischievously planning to really get back at this lady. And then, and then they did. Finally, getting in place, opening up the curtains halfway. And then, then, they pretended to make out with each other. Very odd, but the lady wasn't happy about this. She was enraged. She was beside herself. She was yelling to anyone, anyone who would listen. And then she spit out the worst insult that came to her mind at the time. You're nothing but a goddamn Sputnik. A Sputnik. And For those of you who don't speak 1950s slang, she was calling him a commie by the way of the Soviet Union's successful space satellite launch. A Sputnik. And so that night... With a white streak ever present and his jet black hair coming in at 220 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal, Sputnik Monroe was born. At the start of 1959, after 12 years of just kind of floating around, Sputnik Monroe made his way to Memphis wrestling, and before long, a legend was born. But Nick always had a special relationship with the black fans. When I say that, I, I don't just mean that he appealed to them. I mean he would hang out with them. Those were his people. Dressing up in brightly colored suits, complete with a hat and walking stick, the guy would spend his free time at black nightclubs and bars on Beale Street, congregating with his public. And boy, this ruffled a lot of people's feathers, including, including the local police. And they started arresting him on all sorts of trumped up charges. Like mopery with attempted gawk. I don't even know what that means. Monroe wouldn't back down, though. He'd show up in court, and he'd battle these charges, you know, with his lawyer. A black lawyer. And this was a big deal. I mean, that's that's not something that happened. On record, he was the first white man in Memphis to ever do such a thing, to make that kind of statement. That was groundbreaking on its own. But Sputnik, his heroism, it wouldn't stop there. It was 1959, and segregation was in full force, especially in Memphis. Weekly wrestling matches would take place at the Ellis Auditorium, and business was... It wasn't doing really as well as it could. The floor level had plenty of unsold seats. In wrestling, we kind of like to say the fans came dressed up as chairs. However, there was a small sellout in the building. Every single week, it was in the balcony. You know, the, the place where the black fans were forced to sit, segregated from the rest of the people. In an arena that sat thousands upon thousands of people, the balcony was delegated to about 75 open spots. Yes, Monroe was a huge hit with the black fans, but they were so far away and so little of them. It wasn't having much of an effect. He couldn't show off for them. He couldn't connect with them in the ring. He couldn't wrestle for them. Sputnik was angry, as well as he should have been. Those were his fans. He loved... And he respected them. He would refer to them as his black friends. And he meant it. He was a real part of their community. And seeing them treated like this hurt him. It hurt him money-wise, too. Back then, you were paid a percentage of the gate, so segregation had a direct negative impact on his income. The smaller the attendance, the smaller the pay, no matter what color the audience was. Sputnik, he was a real leader in the equality movement. He was a high-profile person in his community, and he knew... He could make a difference He knew he could do something So he did Monroe had a plan He took his own money and he bribed the ticket takers At the colored window To oversell the balcony You know, instead of uh, 75 fans Upwards of a thousand black fans Came into the arena And with nowhere to sit They had no choice but to start pouring into the white section Sputnik's plan It worked perfectly The promoter, Roy Welch, was irate, threatened to cancel the show. But remember, though, Sputnik had become a big star to this point. With stardom comes power. Sputnik Monroe, he was a star, not only inside of the ring, but he was a star outside of the ring. He was a hero, risking not only his career, but his life He stood up to the police, the arena, and the promoter and let them know that he would not perform unless his friends could stay watching and supporting all of the wrestling with the simple pleasure of sitting where they wanted to. The promoter, Welch, he couldn't afford not to have Sputnik on the card. And Sputnik got his way. Sure, before the matches got underway, the first integrated card was a bit tense, but once there was wrestling in the ring They weren't black fans They weren't white fans They were wrestling fans And it was just like Any other night at the wrestling matches Except for the ways it wasn't Invincible Invincible <laughs> Here with David Bixenspan, who helped write and collaborate today's story. Dave, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well today. An interesting story. I think a great story. You know, when I, when I came to you and I asked about different stories in the wrestling world, this is the this is the first one that we collaborated on. How come this one came to mind?
1: I'm gonna be honest, like, I, it was maybe one of the things that would have just been batting around, and then, you know, we kind of started putting this together, like, not long after the Hogan stuff happened, and in my head I was like what's something that kind of reverses that? Here's something that's not racism. Here's someone that's actually doing good in wrestling when it comes to race relations and all that. And I thought, like, that's something positive and it fits into kind of what you were trying to do in here. And it was also something that even before I mentioned it to you, I kind of had a feeling you would be into. So, yeah, I mean, that's just that's kind of how it came to mind.
0: Was there, like, any other cases? Is this, like, the first documented case you know, of this kind of action going on. Is, there there must have been other heroes just like this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's there are other people who maybe did similar things, just maybe not on that scale. So, but in the South, you know, when it comes to Jim Crow and all of that, I mean, I can't really think of any other, you know, at least, you know, white wrestlers that went to the lengths that he did. Um, you know, later on, a little bit even, you had some black wrestlers who maybe would have stood up for something and then others... You Know we're kind of in solidarity with them, although this wasn't in wrestling. But there was one year in the NFL, I forget it was the NFL or AFL all star game that Ernie Ladd and he may have been in wrestling at this point, and I can't remember, but he may have just been doing football. That I think it was in New Orleans, and the players got there, and it's like, hey, wait a second, you know, because it's still pretty bad, even if there wasn't outright se- officially segregated. It was pretty bad with, you know, the environment for the black players and he stood up for how he felt and the right and his rights and he eventually got a lot of players, black and white, to stand alongside him and they moved the game to Houston. I mean, really, the, Sp- the Sputnik thing is unique, though, because it had such an impact on the future of Memphis. Like, the... the- thing I just mentioned with Ray Ladd, which was after the Sputnik stuff, I mean, it, it's not like it had a lasting impact on New Orleans. I mean, New Orleans was angry that they lost the game, but that was about it. I mean, Sputnik, you know, like you talked about, first white man to be represented by a black lawyer in the city of Memphis. First, then then he was the catalyst for integrating the crowd at the matches.
0: Did he finish out his career in that Memphis area? I know a lot of this was covered in Memphis Heat. But was was he always held in such high regard, or did his career kind of Peter at one point? It
1: kind of did. I mean, he he came back on and off a lot. I mean, you know, he, in the 70s, him and Norvell Austin were the first integrated heel tag team, so he was back then. I mean, even in the—I'm trying to remember when it was in the 80s that they did him and against Billy Wicks again. And, and Billy Wicks, you know, was his big rival throughout— you know his peak in Memphis in the you know early early sixties and all that. So that's the last of him really being like on a major promotion of any kind, though. So he, I think he still did smaller shows after that. I mean, for all intents and purposes, you could say that his career ended in Memphis. Yeah,
0: and we kind of talked. Uh, you and I both kind of talked about not the le- the legitimacy of the story because, and that's what these are. They are stories and tales, and and who knows. You know, the exact details. We weren't there. There were possibilities of other elements to the story, was there not?
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, just to show how hard it is to try to research some of these things as big a part of wrestling lore and Memphis lore and even, you know, Southeast race relations lore, this is. We tried. We talked to Memphis historians. We could not find the date of that card that for, with the first integrated crowd. And, like, I'm thinking about it. And I'm talking to friends. And, like, we're coming to agreement. Like, it's probably because the, me- the media in Memphis at the time was not exactly friendly to the uh, black population of Memphis. So they probably just didn't cover it. And so oh, as far as what you were saying, though, with the story, I mean, there is a version of it that goes that – Uh, Roy Welch who was the promoter didn't have a problem with letting in black fans I mean maybe he you know whether he was or wasn't a racist that he did recognize that it was ridiculous that the uh, Ellis Auditorium segregation was holding back his business and worked with Sputnik and they put the heat on Sputnik because he was a heel or that Sputnik did do it a little on his own but it was with uh, Welch's kind of tacit approval something like that I tend to believe that there's something to it But I also feel like the way that's usually told, it still doesn't give Sputnik enough credit because I feel like it kind of treats him as a guy who wasn't – that the convictions weren't real. And, I mean, they clearly were. I mean, he was part of that community. He went to the black bars, the black clubs, anything. I mean, that was not a gimmick for him. So – Yeah, I tend to think it's at least
0: partially true, but I think that usually the way we hear that version doesn't give them enough credit. So I think it's somewhere in between. And I love the idea that it is pro wrestling. There's always workings behind the scenes. And not that I love the idea that the promoter could have been in on it, but that is still a possibility, especially in the world of pro wrestling. That they use kind of an angle in order to draw more people or grab more attention is, is a definite possibility. I think part of the fascinating
1: thing about all of it, which I mean, you, we didn't even really get to delve into that much, is that he was a heel. I mean, he was a heel, and that's why kind of they were. It was able to work as well as it did. That yeah, the black fans loved him, but the white fans hated him, and not just because the black fans loved him. I mean, they hated him because he was a heel. But he had just had that certain type of persona and that appealed to the black fans. And then when he, you know, then he was part of their community. So kind
0: of like you said, he was the cool heel.
1: I'm sure there were other heels who got cheered in different places, you know, going back to the beginning of there being baby faces and heels. But he's the first person I can really think of, or at least that's a major historical figure where you really think of him being kind of that cool heel type.
0: David Bixensman, I appreciate you helping me on this project, and I look forward to working with you more.
1: As do I. Thanks very much.
0: David Bixenspan is a writer for the Figure Four Weekly at WrestlingObserver.com. His two very fun wrestling podcasts, the 605 Podcast at 605pod.com. And Between the Sheets Podcast with Chris Zellner at Nation.com or anywhere you get your podcasts from. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at David Bix. This episode of the show is edited and produced in my lovely studio. Apartment in Chicago, Illinois. Theme music is Invincible by Def Kev. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Colt Cabana. Listen to my free weekly podcast, The Art of Wrestling, where I sit down with a different wrestler each week in person in a different locker room all over the world to figure out the struggles and triumphs in their personal careers. Coltmerch.com is where you can buy a Colt t shirt of the award winning Wrestling Road Diaries series that I star in and produce. ColtCabana.com is my website where you can find all my links and even see what crazy part of the world I'll be wrestling in next. I also invite you to buy a t-shirt at ProWrestlingTees.com, supporting independent and fringe wrestlers all over the world. Thanks for listening to this episode on Howl.fm. There's so much great content on the page and the app. I recommend the Sklar brothers finding the funny and Andy Peters' album, exclamation mark, question point, where he actually does a hilarious bit about Jake the Snake Roberts. Also, Mark Marin interviews the president of the United States of America. I get a shout out at the end. This has been Pro Wrestling Fringe. For Colt Cabana, I'm Colt Cabana. Thanks. They bring in a diamond ring and Cadillac man to do a Model T job. When you play, you have to pay, man. So now it's settle up time. They didn't give me no whip daddy, no green, no line. They give me a little shoe shine money, man. I got expensive habits and expensive taste. You don't call me and fly me in on an airplane and ride me out of town on a Greyhound bus like I slipped in here with a watermelon rind and a tennis shoe on, ignorance. Die.